today's talk is really going to focus on nirvana um and it's it's going to be in maybe a different way than you might expect um and, and we'll we'll get to that more towards the end um so some may consider nirvana to be some far out concept we may have our own conceptions as to what that state might look or feel like and yet i don't know if the mind can fully conceive of what nirvana would be like ideas and concepts are not the same as the actual experience that those ideas or concepts represent it's like the finger pointing at the moon the finger that points to the moon is not the moon itself. So while it may be helpful to have a conception of what nirvana is like, just as the finger serves as a guidepost for the person searching for the moon, we can't get fixated on the concept and instead we must engage in this process with an open and curious mind. So we're going to be exploring nirvana a little bit more in depth to better understand where the end of the path may lead. We know that practicing the Noble Eightfold Path is the process that gets us there, and we're going to be discussing the Eightfold Path in the talks to come. But the third noble truth is focused on making a claim of where that path can lead. Now, the literal meaning of the term nirvana in Sanskrit is to be blown out or to be extinguished. It's characterized by the extinction of craving or more, more broadly, the extinction of the three fires or the three poisons of craving, which are attachment, aversion, and ignorance. And when these fires are extinguished, suffering comes to an end and one is released from the cycle of rebirth. So nirvana is characterized by the extinction of the three fires that create craving. So let's explore these fires just a little bit more to better understand nature. The first fire or poison is greed. And greed is represented by a burning desire or an unquenchable thirst. We want the objects of our desire to provide us with lasting satisfaction so we can feel filled, whole, and complete. Greed creates an inner hunger so that we always seem to be striving towards a goal that never truly satisfies. We mistakenly believe that our happiness is dependent upon that goal, but once we attain it, we don't get lasting satisfaction. Then, inevitably, greed and desire will arise once again, looking outside of ourselves for the next thing that will hopefully bring satisfaction. When we are influenced by greed, we are never fully content. And I find this description of greed to be very resonant um, with my own personal experience. Uh, I can personally reflect on several vices that I might crave or be influenced by greed to pursue. Um, and, and I can 
seeing within my own experience how I chased things outside of myself to make me happy or to feel content. Um, and yet it never fully provides that lasting satisfaction. And so I invite you all to take a moment to just reflect on what you have been, what you have been influenced by greed by that didn't uh, how greed shows up in your life. So what might be some examples where you maybe desperately wanted something and once you got it, it didn't fully satisfy? So I invite you to take a minute to reflect. And if anyone has any input that they'd like to share, I'd be curious to hear what people may have to say. Well, I can, uh, this is kind of a mundane example, but I, I could just give you tons of examples of the greediness in my life. But one that I have often related in situations like this is my 50th birthday. I was, um, I was, I, I was married at the time to a person who did not believe in celebration. And so I was feeling a little bit um, pitiful about myself turning 50. And I'd always wanted a David Yurman ring. I don't know if any of you people out there know that he's a jewelry designer who I admired for so long. And so as a gift to myself, I decided I was going to buy a David Yurman ring. And I went down to a store on Pork Park Avenue and purchased the ring. And I still have um, the ring to this day. Um, it's a beautiful ring. And I said to myself when I bought it, it was way more expensive than I uh, should have spent on a piece of jewelry, but I wanted it so bad. It was just, I was in the grips of greed, uh, wanting this, this ring. And so I um, justified the purchase of it by saying to myself, if I have this David Yurman ring, I will never need another piece of jewelry again in my life. And that was in August. Um, and I, in October, I was on a trip to Maine with a group of high school girlfriends and we were shopping as uh, women will do. And we were in a, found ourselves in a jewelry shop. And once again, I found myself lusting after another ring. And I was just shocked at it, this feeling of awareness that I had of just two months before I had said, I will never need another piece of jewelry. And then bam, here it was again. So that's my greed story. <laughs> I really do love the ring though. I'm very happy that I have it. That's a great, great example. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that did not last very long that sense of fulfillment and and that is the characteristic read um and and in my own experience it's been achievement so i i was an overachiever in college and for me it was getting a good grade that i was motivated by greed to pursue 
but I would get a good grade and I'd be happy for maybe 30 minutes. And as soon as that sense of contentment or satisfaction was over, um, I became focused on the next assignment or the next project I had to get a good grade on. So it, it never lasted. Does anyone else have any similar examples? Hey, yeah. this, this is Sandra. Um, similar to Les, I can relate to what the both of you have said. Uh, similar to Leslie, I've uh, been on the quest to try and find the perfect pair of jeans. Mm -hmm. And just when I thought I'd found them, I got home with them. And a week or two later, I was like, you know what? Nah, they're maybe a little bigger than I'd like, actually, and they don't quite feel right. So, uh, you know, the, the, the quest continues perpetually. And, and to relate to what you're saying, Allie, I, I'm always this, this constant cycle of learning and learning. And it's like, you know, so last year I got this new, you know, professional certification in my field. And I thought as I was preparing for it, I thought, okay, once I do this, I'm going to take a break. And for two years, I'm going to just be content with what I have and not venture down any more new pathways. But sure enough, I'm like, oh, what should I do next, though? What's my, what's my next brass ring that I'm going to reach for? And there's always something else. Yes, that's, you know, even to, to piggyback off of that, um, my, uh, my drive to get good grades also has become now a drive to obtain as many professional certifications as I can get. So I completely relate and I'm in the middle of one program right now and and some, somewhere in the middle of it, I decided to take on another certification program and then I overwhelmed myself. And so then I had to take a pause on one of them so that I can complete the one I'm in right now. Um, but that's just great, you know? So it's useful to think about how these times show up in your life. Um, so if anyone else has any input uh, i'd love to hear it yes peter well um some of you already know this but um, my greed is organized around certain kinds of spiritual attainments like the achievement of jhana which i realized for a while many many years ago but lately it's eluded me but i keep crashing around that um so part of what my practice is now is being able to recognize when I'm becoming too attached to outcome and just be interested in the simple practice of mindfulness of breathing and noticing what happens. So that my, my attachment there was to achieve this particular kind of standard that's been established 
from the early days of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So that can happen even if someone is pretty dedicated to uh, the path, the attachment to a particular uh, attainment can be troublesome. And I'm glad you bring that up because it shows how insidious greed can be, where greed is not limited to acquiring certifications or grades or material objects, but even to subtle things like spiritual attainments. So that's a great example. Okay, unless anyone else has something to contribute, we can go ahead and record. So moving on to the antidote for greed. The antidote for greed is the practice of selflessness, generosity, detachment, and contentment. The more we practice being selfless, generous, and content with what we have, the more prone we even become to receiving. It's quite paradoxical, but greed is rooted in a sense of lack. There is the perception of some internal void that needs to be continuously filled by some external stimulus. But the reason greed never satisfies because we erroneously project things like contentment or joy as coming from outside of ourselves. We create a sense of lack internally through this projection and thus feel compelled to pursue the object of our desire to fill the sense of lack. So as long as we project states like contentment or joy outside of ourselves, we'll never be satisfied. To realize that joy and contentment are already accessible within us, that we're already full just as we are, means we can stop pursuing. And it's from a place of wholeness that we can give more generously and act more selflessly. And then we learn that giving is actually what creates joy and contentment. Whereas before we thought we needed to receive things in order to feel full, we now understand that giving is actually what makes us feel full. So I find that to be quite paradoxical, you know, the sense that if we feel a sense of lack, we need to pursue things outside of ourselves to fill that sense of lack. But if we recognize that we're already full and we give from that place of fullness and wholeness, then we create this positive feedback loop of, of joy and contentment already within ourselves. So the key here, I think, is to realize that things like happiness or joy or contentment are not outside of yourself. They're already inside of you. And it's just a matter of learning how to access. So moving on to the next fire or poison, which is aversion. The symptoms of aversion or hatred can show up as anger, hostility, dislike, aversion, or ill will. 
With aversion, we habitually resist, deny, and avoid unpleasant feelings, circumstances, and people we do not like. We want everything to be pleasant, comfortable, and satisfying all the time. This behavior ultimately reinforces our perception of duality and separation. Hatred or anger thrusts us into a vicious cycle of always finding conflict and enemies everywhere and around us. And when there's conflict or perceived enemies around us, we were endlessly occupied with strategies of self-protection or revenge. We can also create conflict within ourselves when we have an aversion to our own uncomfortable feelings. With hatred and aversion, we deny, resist, and push away our own feelings of fear, hurt, loneliness, and so forth. With the poison of hatred, we create conflict and enemies in the world around us and within our own being. Now, aversion, for me, I know, is something I deal with on a daily basis, and and it's one of the hindrances that I've been dealing with a little bit more regularly than the others. Um, and in my own experience, I found aversion is more of an internal thing. It's, there's more of an aversion towards uncomfortable feelings or parts of myself as opposed to aversion towards other people or experiences. Um, and I'm sure everyone here can even relate to that on some level. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, I invite anyone, if, if they would like to say anything on their experience with aversion, you're more than welcome to. If not, we can keep going. So if anyone has a burning desire to contribute something, I am all ears. So the antidote to aversion is metta or loving kindness. And I'm also learning from my own experience that acceptance also contributes to this antidote and may even serve as a prerequisite for practicing metta. If, for example, I experience aversion towards some aspect of my personality, I, I found it hard to practice metta towards that part of me if I fundamentally see that part as unacceptable. So by first accepting that part, by recognizing that whether I like it or not, this part is a part of me, then it opens up a space for me to be able to then practice kindness towards that part. So perhaps the antidote to aversion is cultivating an attitude of acceptance and kindness towards oneself and others. And the final fire is that of delusion or ignorance. So ignorance is our wrong understanding or wrong views of reality. It is our misperception of the way the world works, our inability to understand the nature of things exactly as they are, free of perceptual distortions. Influenced by delusion, we are not in harmony with ourselves, others, or with life. We're not living in accordance with the Dharma. And affected by the poison of delusion, which arises from ignorance of our true nature, 
we don't understand the interdependent and impermanent nature of life. As a result, we're constantly looking outside of ourselves for happiness, satisfaction, and solutions to our problems. And delusion also refers to the erroneous belief in a separate autonomous self, where we are thus ignorant to the reality of non-self and the inherent emptiness of form. So we can see from this description of delusion that it actually fuels the other two poisons of greed and aversion. The delusion of happiness stemming outside of ourselves gives rise to greed, and the delusion of a separate self gives rise to aversion. While ignorance is at the core, uh, all three of these poisons do intermingle and reinforce one themselves um, if left unchecked. And the antidote to ignorance is the cultivation of wisdom, insight, and right understanding. We do this by recognizing truth of impermanence, non-self, and emptiness. When we fully understand and embody these truths, all three fires can become extinguished and the cessation of suffering can become reality. So I'm going to pause here just to check in if there are any questions so far on the three poisons or the three fires or any comments at all. Yeah, Sandra. Um, so I've been, my, my mom has been having some health challenges and I've had a lot of aversion around um, you know, feeling this responsibility for taking care of her and feeling this aversion around, uh, you know, witnessing her discomfort and her, um, and her suffering. And it's dawning on me that and I, I know this, but I had, I had to kind of remember it, um, that accepting what's happening is not the same at all as liking what's happening, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, yeah, I've been I've been having a, a big struggle with that, and um, you know, trying to find some way to be okay with it. And maybe there isn't any real being okay with it beyond just accepting that this is this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you know, oh, I, have, I have idea. Oh, what was sorry. that? Sorry, go ahead. No, what were you going to say? I, I, I have some idea about you know being okay with what's happening means um, you know being happy about what's happening, and that's not necessarily true. Yes, yes, and and that's. A really important point to emphasize that accepting something does not mean that you have to like it or not like it, but you simply accept that it's happening or that it's there. Um, and 
And I know aversion tends to come up frequently as the emotion of anger. And so that can be useful to realize when aversion is coming up. If there is a part of you feeling angry, then maybe we can start by accepting that anger is there. And that's okay. So I know anger um, sometimes can be seen as a complicated emotion. It's often seen as bad. Um, and, and I think we can all go a long way by simply accepting that anger is a part of us and it's, you know, it, it is a normal human emotion. Um, and I think the, the, the quicker we can be towards accepting anger, then perhaps we can exercise more power over it as opposed to it having power over us. Um, so yeah, I think acceptance is huge and I appreciate you bringing that up. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Mary. So following on uh, Sandra's situation, um, I'm a little further along with my mother um, has passed on, but it was uh, a painful decline, both mentally and physically for her. And um, what I experience still is just, um, I'm, you know, like I, I didn't like how it happened. I didn't like what she had to go through. And so it's kind of like I'm protesting the situation. And while I'm protesting and just sitting, standing there with my sign that says, I protest this, it's, I'm not doing anything else that's productive because I'm so busy. Just, I'm just 100% protesting everything. And so it really is hard for me to put that sign down that says I am protesting and to get on with my life. So I am, that's, you know, what I, I know. <laughs> and so if I understand you correctly, that's, that's how aversion comes up for you is that sense of protesting the circumstances yeah. around your mother's passing. Yeah. Okay. Allie? Yeah, Peter. Can I make a comment about this? Um, sure. Ignorance has two different uh, issues come, come with ignorance. One of them is the ignorance that uh, Sandra and Mary are talking about, which is um, the difficulty of dealing with Mortality, uh, the, the mortality of a, a parent, uh, your mother's, uh, that on the one hand we know, yeah, people die, but on the other hand, when they're going through it, it's hard to accept it. 
I mean, my mother and my mother-in-law lived 10 years apart. They lived with me and my wife and died in our homes. So I, I get it. I understand that. That's one level of, of ignorance is coming to terms with seeing someone we care about suffering. The other level, which is the, the, the main issue of the third noble truth, is the ignorance. The, the reason why the suffering happens is because we've become attached to the notion that I have a self. You know, I, I, myself um, shouldn't have to deal with this. Or, by extension, my mother's self shouldn't have had to deal with this. Um, so it's two different ways to understand the same issue. One of them is ignorance about the circumstance. In this case, you know, elderly parents getting ill and, and dying uh, or approaching death. And the other one is the whole notion that Somehow or other, we shouldn't have to suffer. But that's a core part of our humanity because we buy into the notion that there's a separate, enduring, autonomous self. So that's the hard part to let go of. Even though the other part is obviously painful and difficult, the, other, the, the one about the, the ultimate door to nirvana is is the one that's most difficult to deal with and it's the one that we actually is the origin of our suffering i don't know if that makes sense or not it does thank you Peter. okay any other questions or comments before we continue yeah Linda. Minda, you got to unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, what I find is um, ignorance of what Peter is talking about, that um, that sense that I have a, um, a real core self in there, um, that has led me to, to feel anger toward my sister recently because she was in a car accident driving my car. Um, she was not badly hurt, thank goodness, but... Um, there was another person, a, a bicyclist involved, and he was killed, not directly by her, but anyway, the whole thing, uh, you know, for somebody who, who likes to be in control, as I do, um, and that, of course, is another manifestation of, you know, that a self has control, a self has agency, um, and the teachings tell us, of course, that this is not the case, but this is how 
this is how I feel <laughs> most of the time and, and operate from that. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's there intellectually, but it is not there on a gut level, at least not yet. Um, so, you know, with that, I, I felt very badly for my sister, of course, but I, I really had difficulty managing the anger and I'm not usually very angry <laughs> about things. Um, and I can see, you know, as we're talking where that comes from, you know, because that, um, that core self that I think is there was not in control. We had to deal with letters and phone calls and Geico insurance and, and all sorts of things. And we may be sued, both of us. So, you know, it's like all of a sudden there's, there isn't that control. And it's all based on the ignorance of what myself is or is not. So this has been very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And, and I think, you know, based off of what you were saying, it's, it's clear from based off of what everyone has been saying that uh, ignorance is really at the root of these three poisons. You know, whether it is anger or aversion or greed, um, at the root of, of even those poisons is ignorance and, and specifically ignorance of the reality of non-self and the emptiness that underlies all of form. So, yeah. Thank you, everyone. All right, we're gonna go ahead and keep going. So we just reviewed the three fires or poisons. Um, and in addition to those poisons that need to be extinguished, there also are 10 fetters that need to be relinquished in order to achieve nirvana. So these 10 fetters are, number one, the view of a personal identity. Number two is deluded doubt. Number three is attachment to rites and rituals. Number four is attachment to sensuality. Number five is ill will. Number six is desire for existence and form realm. Number seven, I think, is desire for existence in the formless realm. Number eight is conceit, is restlessness. And number 10 is ignorance. Achieving full enlightenment is a process. And we progressively, or as, as we progressively relinquish these fetters, we ascend gradually towards enlightenment. There are four stages that precede full enlightenment and the fetters that are relinquished. The first stage is called stream enterer. And when you reach that stage, there are three fetters that are abandoned, the first three which are the view of a personal identity, deluded doubt, and attachment to rites and rituals. So when one becomes a stream enterer, enlightenment becomes inevitable. Um, although it's going to take up to seven more rebirths before reaching full enlightenment. So once you reach stream entry, you are pretty much guaranteed enlightenment, although it's gonna take at least seven more rebirths before you get there. 
And additionally, when one accesses stream entry, uh, one is no longer going to be reborn into any of the three fortunate births, which are the hell, hungry ghost, or animal realms. Attaining stream entry means full abandonment of the first three fetters, self-view, doubt, and the belief that rites and rituals can liberate. With the abandonment of the first fetter, self-view, the individual develops insight into anatta, in which the practitioner realizes that there is no permanent, substantial individual being or soul that experiences life. Relinquishing doubt permanently ends the fifth hindrance, as one now understands deeply and intuitively that the path works and leads to real happiness and freedom. Abandoning the third fetter, attachment to rites and rituals, confirms through direct experience that only the eighth path leads to enlightenment, not other forms of ritual practice. This does not mean that rites and rituals are meaningless or not skillful, but only that they cannot by themselves bring one to liberation. So that's stream entry. The second stage is called once returner. And in this stage, there are no fetters that are relinquished, but two fetters are weakened. And those fetters are attachment to sexuality and ill will. So the practitioner who makes it to this second stage of awakening is called a once returner because this path guarantees only one further birth at most in the human or spirit realms before he full liberation. The paths are cumulative, so the once returner will have already ended the first three fetters, and in the second stage weakens the following two, which are sense desire and ill will. These fetters are also the first two of the five hindrances that we work with most of the time in our practice. And they're weakened with the attainment of once return, but only uprooted in the next stage. This emphasizes ultimately the gradual the gradual nature of the awakening process. So after one's returner, we then trans, um, transition into non-returner, which is third stage. And in non-returner, the fetters that are abandoned are the ones that were weakened in the previous stage. So attachment to sensuality and ill will are officially abandoned by this stage. The non-returner is said to be destined for only one further both at most, this time only in a subtle or formless realm and completing enlightenment there. With this path, the two fetters of sense desire and ill will that were weakened for the one's returner are fully ended. And this completes the uprooting of the five lower fetters. The remaining five are ended only when one becomes an archon the final stage of awakening. Because the fetters of craving for both form-based and formless meditative states still remain, non-returners can still be attached to meditative tranquility. Being free from sense desire, they will no longer be born in a body, but attachment to meditative bliss will cause their rebirth to be in a subtle realm. And then the final stage is that of Arhat. And by this stage, the five last fetters are completely abandoned. So those fetters are the desire for existence in the form realm, desire for existence in the formless realm, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. 
So our youths have pretty much attained nirvana. They have uprooted the five higher fetters, um, and they will never again be reborn into suffering, so this is their last birth. The fetters of craving for form and craving for the formless refer to the lingering desire for meditative blisses of samadhi, such as the four form absorptions, the jhana states, and the four formless states, rupa. Conceit is a subtle form of ego that is present when we judge ourselves as better than, the same as, or worse than others. The sense of self as separate from others can arise long after the insight into selflessness that matured with stream entry, and it's one of the last delusions to be uprooted. The last of the five hindrances to be ended is restlessness, which refers not just to physical impulses, but also to the tendency of the mind to wander. The final fetter is the deep root of all of our suffering and the process of rebirth, ignorance. The ending of ignorance is the arising of enlightenment. Um, and in the teaching of the Anapanasati, I'm not sure how to. Anapanasati? You know, it's not Anapanasati, it's Anapanapindika. Are you familiar with that? Uh, Ananda Pindika? Is that what you're saying? Ananda Pindika? Yeah, Ananda Pindika. Are you not familiar with that? Um, I'm, I'm familiar with the term. I'm interested in hearing more about what you discovered regarding it. Yeah, so I found... Uh, in this particular teaching, um, it just states that wisdom and stream entry is attained by clearly seeing dependent origination. So I mean, it's not, you know, anything that we haven't already spoke of. I know you spoke of dependent origination. I think it was in the last talk. That's right. Right. So the first link in the sequence of dependent origination is ignorance, and the links are connected by causality. So thus, the ending of ignorance means that the second link, which is volitional formations, will not arise and onward through all 12 links. The ending of ignorance is thus the guarantee that rebirth, which is link 11, will not arise. So we, we just went through all four stages of the enlightenment process. And... And prior to that, we were reviewing the, the extinguishing of the three fires. Um, now, the point that I really want to emphasize so much for everybody is to notice how the process of attaining enlightenment seems to be a process characterized by ongoing relinquishment. So if enlightenment is characterized by the absence or extinguishment of the three fires, and it is likewise characterized by the abandonment or relinquishment of the ten fetters, it points to this fact that nothing is actually gained in the process of enlightenment. Rather, the barriers to enlightenment are just removed. And so I know I started this talk saying that we were going to be talking about enlightenment, but really the structure of the talk was really talking about everything enlightenment is not, which is kind of paradoxical. Um, but, but the reality is that 
when you take away all of these fetters and you and you remove or extinguish the fires is is how enlightenment just naturally emerges and i think that's a really important point to sit with you know enlightenment is not a process of acquiring or or learning or gaining anything it's just a process of removing the barriers um so that enlightenment can just emerge naturally it illustrates that awakening really lies at the ground of our being and it's just being obscured by the fetters and the three fires and you can think of it like clouds obscuring the sky where the sky represents the ground of our being our inherent wakefulness and once the clouds are removed we can experience the full spaciousness and emptiness of the sky in a way we're all already awake it's the fires of greed hate and delusion as well as the 10 fetters that just keep us in this dream state and it's when we progressively surrender that which is obscuring our wakefulness that we can fully experience a true nature so I'm going to pause here for a second just to check in if there are any questions or comments. Can, can I expand a little bit on what you you just said, Allie? Yeah, which is please. you know entirely accurate. Um, in terms of the fetters and the three fires, the practice of awakening begins every time we let go of that which grabs the mind. So that's renunciation. So we keep doing that and doing that and doing that and go through these different stages that you uh, mentioned, uh, which are classic uh, Buddhist teachings. At the end of all that, the the power of the free fires is so diminished this is this is the nirvana basically means all the fuel of attachment has has been burned up and the experience of viraga or 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 this passion is so strong that renunciation turns into relinquishment which means there's no longer any felt need to believe in a separate self. We have to start out kind of denying its power, but as the process matures, the awakening becomes something that's just complete and total surrender of anything that leads us to believe or, or creates a sense of a separate self. So I'm just rewording what you were saying. I think it's important to understand the transition between renunciation, which is letting go. Every time the mind gets distracted, we go back to the breath. We're building that. Um, and then the final relinquishment basically means that it no longer matters. The notion of there being an enduring autonomous self just doesn't matter anymore. Thank you, Peter. First, um, and 
And yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's interesting to think of this process as being characterized by renunciation and relinquishment. Um, this idea that enlightenment or wakefulness is out of our reach. Um, it, it's just ironic because in a way it's it seems to represent the ground of our being um, and and it's there and it's accessible it's just being obscured by ignorance and um, and and being propped up by the three fires so so yeah it's, it was an interesting process doing research for this talk um, do you have any comments or questions? Ali? Yeah, Linda. I think you gave a very good talk, um, and you certainly stimulated me to think about um, a lot of this stuff in a slightly different way. So thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate that, and I'm glad that this was stimulating for you. It was stimulating for me to to do research on. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Hey, it's Karen. Hey, Karen. Um, hi, and thank you so much. I enjoyed that. It it does seem like a pretty uh, tall order. <laughs> um, but we just we just keep sitting and moving through as 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 we can i just wanted to back up a little bit um i it's good to see sandra here i hadn't seen you in a long time and i just wanted to comment um about your share on your on your mother um, because my mother just recently passed away and i went through a lot of um, what i heard you sharing um really very close to her passing um and as Allie had mentioned for you know aversion because it was becoming very difficult for me to continue to travel back and forth to Lakeland and and help her out and uh, I did you know I went through a lot of emotions and and uh, feelings about it and one of the things that really helped me, which was suggested to me, um, was the loving kindness meditation. And I would send her loving kindness and um, in, in my meditation practice, you know, I would include her. And, and it, it was a real transformation that, that happened actually somewhat quickly. Um, and, um, you know, I, when she did pass away, I was with her and I, I felt very good about our relationship over the last year and there were some hard times, but at the end, you know, I felt really, I felt okay with everything that had taken place. And I believe she did too. And, um, I just strongly you know would encourage the loving kindness because 
it had helped me a lot. And, um, and sometimes she was difficult. And so I would use something I heard from Sharon Salzberg on loving kindness meditation for those that are difficult is that I, you know, to say, I care for you, but I cannot be responsible for your suffering. And, and I used to practice that, you know, with um, my mother in mind. And I was actually doing a loving kindness meditation the other day after she had passed and the little angel showed up in my memory. <laughs> it was, a, I saw her face when she was a young woman and, and I had not included her in the loving kindness. And when I saw her face, I'm like, okay, mom, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna get you now. <laughs> Um, but it did really help me it's, and so not to make light of it because it, it can be a difficult, stressful time, but that helped me tremendously. And I wanted to share that, um, with anybody that is struggling, you know, with their a sick family member, especially a mother. So thank you. Yes. Thank you, Karen. And that's really solid advice. Loving kindness meditation is certainly the antidote to aversion. Um, and it's also just a very pleasant type of meditation to engage in. And it, you know, opens up the heart. So I think anyone can benefit. Okay. Can I say one more thing, please, Allie? Yeah, of course. To take off from what Karen was saying. Um, you know, we had this notion from the tradition that awakening is this spectacular experience of the unconditioned, and it is. But awakening also happened, for example, after practicing loving-kindness meditation and realizing a sense of relief from distress and confusion about one's parent, in this case. So that's also awakening, and it's a completely legitimate uh, realization, very important one, um, because we can get fixated on, on uh, you know, I this isn't really working for me until I experience nirvana. So what's the point? Well, the point is feeling better, feeling having more uh, integration, more uh, confidence in dealing with life's difficulties, and feeling a sense of of gratitude and celebration. There's so much gratitude in my life now. And for me, that's an important part of my awakening. Yeah, gratitude is a powerful practice. I've recently started uh, practicing it a little bit more frequently and, and it really changes your perspective. You know, so much of our time is focused spending on um spending our time on on what we're lacking or what's wrong or you know what loose what threatens loose you know in our life um but so little time do we spend on being grateful for what's going well or what we do have Any other comments or questions? 
So we're getting close to the end of the time tonight. Thank you, Allie. You did a really good job there. I'm really grateful. And I'm glad you enjoyed doing the research. That's an important part of this is, is doing the research and putting it all together. At least it's been that way for me for many years. Uh, next week, Lily is going to share with us her research and her insights about the fourth noble truth as an overview of the noble uh, eightfold path. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So as is our custom, let's sit together for a brief interval. Thank you for your practice and wish you well and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy and until the next time we have a chance to uh, chat. <laughs>